Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. In recent months, I've been hearing about hybrid systems designed to handle different data management needs. At Strata plus Hadoop World last week, Cloudera's Todd Lipkin unveiled an open source project that does well serving transactional and analytic workloads. Um, and along those same lines, I've been hearing about systems that combine SQL and search in the same engine. Uh, I believe the pattern is in a distributed computing environment, um, the complexity of running many systems uh, just becomes difficult over time. So companies are looking to these hybrid solutions. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica, here today with uh, Todd Lipkin, who is an engineer at Cloudera and who last week uh, launched a new open source project called Kudu at Strata plus Hadoop World in New York. Welcome to the Data Show, Todd. Hi, right, thanks for having me. So I think it's good uh, to start with uh, uh, a little bit of background about yourself. Uh, you're fairly well-known among Hadoop and HBase developers, but probably not as well-known to the broader uh, data community. So uh, uh, you got your CS degree at Brown, and mm -hmm. obviously you're well-known for working on these large-scale distributed systems like Hadoop and HBase. Mm -hmm. So was that your area of focus in school? Uh, actually, it wasn't at all. When I was in college, I looked at a couple of database courses and I thought, you know, databases are pretty boring. You just put data in and get it back out. Uh, <laughs> what's the fun in that? Um, so I actually concentrated a lot more on operating systems and some machine learning type stuff. Uh, and also a little bit of electrical engineering, kind of lower level hardware. So the way I kind of got from there to where I ended up, uh, the story is I, I went to Google and I was working as an intern over the summer at Google. And one of my uh, tasks there was doing fraud analysis on some um, payment data for Google Checkout and AdWords. And I was using MapReduce and Bigtable there. Um, that's sort of where I started to think like, hey, this, this infrastructure stuff is pretty cool. Um, but I was also still thinking this machine learning stuff is pretty cool. Uh, so I did a thesis in undergrad on machine learning. Still didn't really think I was a systems person in terms of the distributed systems. But when I graduated, I ended up at a startup doing kind of all things DevOpsy, you know, DBA, some JavaScript, some PHP, hacking my so SQL a little bit too. Was grad school never in the cards for you? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't, I always liked school, but I, I liked learning things, not the actual process of school. And I felt like as an engineer, I could be learning things just in my career anyway. So, and, I mean, I briefly considered it, but it wasn't really a, a strong thing. You know, it seems like you're not actually alone. I have met several kind of uh, well-known uh, uh, infrastructure and uh, data engineers that started out in machine learning and then they found themselves in situations where they had to do a kind of systems and DevOps things and then they slowly shifted into that area. Yeah, that's basically how I ended up at Cloudera. I was trying to use Cassandra 0.1, the very first actually pre-Apache release of Cassandra and I came across Jeff Hammerbacher whose team had open sourced that at Facebook. And I was trying to use that for data for machine learning task. I kept on finding bugs. I started fixing the bugs. And I was like, hey, fixing the bugs in Cassandra, it's a lot more fun than actually doing the machine learning job I'm supposed to be doing. So that's around the same time that Cloudera got founded and I got in touch with him and ended up out here. 
Speaking of which, I'm looking at a famous picture from uh, 2009 that our mutual friend Matt Massey posted on Twitter a while back. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is kind of the first, the early team at Cloudera, and a lot of them have gone on to do great things, including Matei Saharia, who was an intern and uh, created Spark later. But, uh, you know, one of the interesting things about this picture, Todd, is that uh, four out of the four of the people on this picture, there's only 11 people in this picture, are now full-time working on bioinformatics or genomics. Yeah, I didn't do the count, but that, that could be. Yeah, yeah you got Tom White, Aaron, Tom, Tom White, Tom, Jeff, and, yeah. Matt Massey, and, and Aaron. Oh, yeah, yep, you're right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, a couple other company founders in there, and a couple so that, of folks still at Cladera, So Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, that for our audience out there, that should tell you something about uh, what you should be looking at in the future. <laughs> Um, so you weren't in the picture, but I guess according to the Twitter comments, you joined shortly after. I think I joined like a day or two after that picture. I have another one somewhere that's uh, us playing paintball against a bunch of twelve-year-olds. That's probably a story for another day. So what was uh, so you were hired just as a general purpose engineer? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I started working on Cassandra and Hadoop and stuff from my other company I was previously at. I thought it was fun. So I wanted to go to Cloudera to work on that. And then I arrived and they pretty quickly figured out that I knew some stuff about uh, Debian packaging, of all things. And we, at that time, we had only Red Hat packages. This is CDH1. Uh, so they're like, hey, Todd, your first job is to do Debian packaging. It wasn't what I joined the company to do, but you know, it's a startup, so you do a little bit of everything. Uh, so probably my first year, I did um, really jack-of-all-trades, like some packaging, some front-end JavaScript-y stuff, a bunch of Python on a project that later became Hue. But after a year or so, I was like, hey, guys, I didn't really join to be this full stack engineer. I, I know how to do it because of my background at this previous web startup. But I want to be working more on the guts of stuff. And that's when I transitioned more to working on core Hadoop uh, and became a Hadoop committer and later an HBase committer. You know, I, I learned something interesting here because uh, obviously you're very well known uh, in the HBase community, but that uh, early on you were a Cassandra guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is more before Cloudera. Yeah. Uh, I've tried Cassandra. It didn't really work. Fixed a couple of bugs. Um, you know, corresponded a lot with Jonathan Ellis and the folks who later became DataStax. I tried HBase at that time as well. It didn't really work. This is like 2008, 2000, I guess late 2008. So I fixed a couple of bugs in HBase. That didn't really work either. So then I eventually figured out how to trim my data set and fit it into MySQL. And MySQL worked great. <laughs> so <laughs> the systems have come a long way since 2008. Uh, that's sort of how I got my start in this area. So uh, walk us through then kind of your evolution of projects within Cloudera. You mentioned you. What else? Yeah, um, so the packaging stuff, a lot of our early build system, uh, Hue. Um, and then around that time is when people started to care about security. So I guess this is late 2010. People were like, hey, Hadoop is great, but we need some actual security features. And Yahoo had already created their fork of Hadoop. There's kind of this short-lived fork. Uh, I don't know if you were following the Hadoop right, right, inside right, right, baseball right. at this yep, time, yep. where they had had some requirement they had to be SOX compliant for some application by some time. And they'd forked Hadoop, made it really secure, and posted it on GitHub with the plan to eventually contribute it all back. And we decided at Cloudera we were going to have a secure distribution of Hadoop. And my job was to basically cross-port some 550, 600 patches from this Yahoo GitHub repository, <laughs> merge it into our repository. Wow. Uh, so that was kind of a fun couple of months of just digging through thousands of lines of patches and testing it and um, adding security to a couple other components. That so you got, uh, in the process, I imagine you got to know the uh, broad part of the code base. 
Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, I touched MapReduce, HDFS, HBase, Hive, uh, kind of a little bit of everything. So at what point uh, did you start working uh, more with HBase? Because I kind of identify you with HBase, among other things. Yeah, it was around that same time, actually. Um, maybe a little bit before the security work, we saw that... So HBase at that time was not in CDH, uh, but we saw that it was becoming more and more popular. And, um, and Stack was not working at Cloudera yet, right? Right, Stack was still at that time at StumbleUpon. Right. along with uh, several other of the main HBase committers, contributors. So I started talking to them. Uh, Facebook was making rumblings at that point. They were going to use it for Facebook messages. So we saw a little bit of momentum. Um, and folks at Cloudera asked me to take a look at HBase and you know, see whether we could pull it into to our Hadoop distro for our customers to use. And when we first looked at it, we saw that it was missing a lot of key durability sort so, of correctness uh, so features. At this point, Todd, was, were customers asking for functionality that HBase could give, or were you guys kind of ahead of the market? I'd say we were being a little bit speculative. I think our um, most bleeding edge customers were starting to ask about it. And there were some that were even using it just by downloading like the Apache release and running on CDH. Um, so at StumbleUpon, for example, they had all the HBase committers and contributors that were working there. They ran our distribution of Hadoop underneath their fork of HBase or their local um, you know, tweak of HBase. Uh, so we had people using it and we thought, hey, we should probably support this thing. But it required a bit of work to make it, um, let's say, durable and stable enough that we could actually ship it as a supported project. So that was probably where I spent most of my time on HBase was just, um, I didn't add any like major new features, just kind of softening the, the sharp edges that were biting our customers early on. But you, but you became active enough that uh, I think you're a committer and a PMC member of HBase. Is that correct? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, it was a several, probably like nine to 12 month project where I was working full time, kind of going back and forth between HDFS and HBase on these correctness issues. Uh, it gets a little bit into technical details, but Basically, HBase has this write-ahead log that they store on HDFS, and HDFS didn't offer the right features to actually uh, give the write-ahead log durability. So I had to add these features and improve these features in HDFS, then go back to the HBase code base to make it use them. And then once we got durability, we lost some performance. So I had to go and figure out how to make it all fast. Um, so it's kind of back and forth. Between so the a, lot of, a lot of basic things that really make it enterprise-ready. Yeah, it's enterprise-ready and even non-enterprises, people don't want to uh, take downtime. You know, even if you're a small startup, if your website's down for hours because of an issue, then you know it's no good. Right, right. So I guess uh, this allows us to uh, uh, take a segue into this new project you have called Kudu. Sure. Uh, mm -hmm. Actually, before we do that, uh, just for our general audience, uh, explain a little bit, uh, uh, kind of at a high level, HBase's relationship with HDFS and what does HBase offer. Yep. Um, so for those who don't know, HDFS is the Hadoop file system, though to call it a file system is a little bit generous. Uh, it's more like a file store. So it allows you to upload files uh, onto a cluster, um, sort of arbitrary size cluster. We have 20 plus petabytes in single clusters. And the thing is you can upload the files, but you can't go and edit them in place. You have to, to make any change, you have to basically put in a new file. What HBase does in distinction is that it has more of a tabular data model where you can update and um, insert individual row-by-row row data and then go random access that data all on very small, low latencies, like you know number of milliseconds. So the distinction here is that HDFS is pretty good for these large scans where you're, you're putting in a large data set, maybe doing a full pass over the data set to train a machine learning model or compute an aggregate. Um, 
But if any of that data changes on a frequent basis, or if you want to stream the data in or random access individual customer records, uh, you're kind of out of luck on HDFS. So HBase is this layer on top that gives you those capabilities. Kind of the downside, why wouldn't you always use HBase, is that HBase's performance when you're doing these large scans, like looking over your entire data set to compute an aggregate, uh, the performance there is significantly worse than that kind of throughput-oriented performance that HDFS gives you. So occasionally we make the comparison, HBase is more like a Ferrari, HDFS is more like a freight train, and the freight train's much better for moving lots of data across the country. Uh, the Ferrari's a lot better for zipping around, but you're not going to you know, transport a load of oil on a Ferrari. So there are also now tools on top of HBase that allow you to access data using SQL, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think the most prominent example there is a project called Apache Phoenix. Um, even in that case, though, if you talk to the Phoenix developers, whom I know pretty well, um, they'll tell you it's more geared towards the OLTP. They're doing features like indexing and uh, starting to look at transactions as well. Um, if you try to do like a TPCH, which is a standard data warehousing benchmark, using Phoenix, you'll find that the performance there is orders of magnitude slower than the, that same benchmark running against HDFS files. So I guess uh, some time back, you and your team uh, looked at the landscape and realized, okay, so HBase is being used by many of our customers in production. It's good for certain things, but can't do certain other things. So Mm -hmm. uh, was this the genesis for Kudu? Yeah, exactly. So I think this actually dovetails well with what we were just talking about, where HBase is great when you have this high volume of random inserts, random updates, random reads. But oftentimes we have customers who are doing that workload and then all of a sudden want to run a reporting query or train a machine learning model. And they find that doing that full table scan, which you're typically doing, you know, you want to look at all of your history to build a model. That gets really untenably slow. Um, so we have customers building these workarounds where they periodically dump their HBase you know, every night into Parquet files, which have much better performance for that scan workload. Uh, or they're trying to manage like two systems where they, they have today's partition in HBase and a cron job, which exports it and do some fancy atomic partition swap in Hive. Uh, it can sort of be made to work. It's just very, very painful to engineer and to operate later once it's up and running. Um, so this is basically the trend that we saw happening, that our customers rarely have a workload which is just one thing or just the other. Um, so on the other side, people have HDFS data warehouses, and then they get a little bit of late-arriving data or a correction, or this user has filed a privacy, um, some sort of a, a privacy concern, and they need to delete all the data corresponding to a particular user. And these are random accesses, and if your data is on HDFS pretty much out of luck. Like you'd have to swap entire partitions and that's not efficient. It's hard to manage, et cetera. Yeah, and then uh, Todd, there's actually kind of these um, uh, specialized databases, I guess, that uh, people identify more with real time. In this regard, I'm thinking about uh, in particular MemSQL and VaultDB that Mm -hmm. are starting to occupy the space that some people have labeled as this kind of hybrid transactional analytic processing engine. Yep. Yeah, so that's exactly the same kind of thing we're looking at with uh, this new project, Kudu. So as I mentioned, you're kind of stuck between a, a rock and a hard place with HBase being good at random access, but not great at scans. HDFS is terrific at scans, can't do random access at all. So the idea is with Kudu, we're building a, a data store that kind of gives you pretty darn good at both. 
Um, it's not going to be quite as good as HDFS Parquet files for scans, and it's certainly not going to be quite as good as HBase for random access. But if you're kind of like 70-80% of the way there on both axes, then the convenience you right. get out of having a single system for most people will win out because engineering time is expensive and computers are cheap. So, so let's take an example, right? So let's say IoT, right? So I have data from some sensors. I stream it into, let's say, Kafka mm -hmm. and then use a stream processing engine like, I guess, Spark Streaming. And then mm -hmm. it ends up in Kudu. And now mm -hmm. I can do both transactions and reporting. Yes. So I think in the IoT use case, you're probably less interested in updates. Um, but one thing that is popular is random access in that workload. So you may have uh, a bunch of time series, for example. Uh, let's say it's a bunch of uh, industrial manufacturing equipment that's outputting time series about its temperatures and gauges. And you do some big analytics to do some modeling. Then someone actually comes in and wants to repair a particular machine, and they need to get pretty quick access to scan that time series from a particular date range. Uh, and they need to do that in like sub-second kind of time scale. Scanning the entire data set to find that data is not going to work. So if you put this data in Kudu, you get very low latency random access to individual time series, uh, individual time ranges, um, and also very, very good storage efficiency because we're a true column store. So we can do things like delta encoding and bit packing, um, kind of these more advanced techniques for compression that can get us down to you know, maybe one byte per record. It's actually an interesting comparison we ran. We took um, CollectL, which is a kind of standard time series collecting system for just machine metrics, you know, CPU load, memory, that kind of thing. And we built like a 200-line Java program, which parses the output of CollectL and inserts it into Kudu. And we're able to get per row, like a row being a timestamp, metric, host name, and a double value, we're able to get each row in less than a byte of storage. So comparing that to a, a time series store like InfluxDB, we're about 20 times more space efficient. So the idea here is basically that we have this general purpose store that works really well for time series, but it's not a specialized time series store. You could also put in your, um, your data warehouse type data. You could put in some kind of online data that uh, customers may need to look at through a website. Uh, we're not trying to be an OLTP store. Or J JSON but. for web apps. Yeah, so we're, we're not trying to compete with like Mongo. Um, right. We have a string field. You could certainly put in JSON into a string field, but you won't get the same kind of performance benefits that you get uh, versus actually structuring your data. Um, so at this time, we're basically concentrating on structured data where you can define, here's a table, here's the N columns that actually exist in this table, and here are their types. Um, so it's not as flexible as something like MongoDB or HBase or Cassandra, where you can add columns on the fly. On the other hand, the the performance advantages and storage efficiency advantages we get are pretty incredible because we know the, the actual types and columns ahead of time. So I think this is interesting because uh, in many ways, uh, uh, many businesses now want BI or business intelligence on uh, really fresh data. So it sounds mm -hmm. like this system fits into that architecture where you can get your reports on fresh data and may still have uh, your historical reports on Impala. Yeah, exactly. So I should mention the actual access mechanisms for Kudu. Um, we're just a data store. We don't have like a, our own SQL parser or anything like that. Uh, so if you want to query the Kudu data, you can use Impala and you'll get very good query performance from Impala. Uh, you could also just use Spark. So we, ha we can use a RDD in Spark, map it against the Kudu table. Um, and we've actually found that our performance and that Spark, using and that Spark. Spark SQL. 
Yeah, so we haven't done Spark SQL yet. I think that integration should be fairly easy. Uh, actually, by the time this podcast is published, it may be done. Um, but just trying some basic Spark, um, you know, traditional Spark operations, we've actually found that we, we go faster than Spark on Parquet. Interesting, interesting. So uh, uh, for a data engineer or a data architect wanting to put Kudu uh, onto their stack, what's the learning curve? Um, so it sort of depends what level of engineer, like where you like to work. So if you think of yourself mostly as working in these bigger data set type terms, you can use Impala to create a Kudu table. You could say create table as select star from some other table. Uh, that said, you're not going to see a huge advantage moving a static data set from Parquet to Kudu. If it's static, there's not really any advantage. Uh, if instead you're doing something like streaming your data in using Spark Streaming, and you have access to use the Kudu API, you can do row-by-row inserts uh, using the API. It's a Java or C++ API. And then with those row-by-row inserts coming in, you could then be using Spark or MapReduce or Impala or anything on the back end, kind of these higher-level interfaces. And the APIs there will be exactly what you're used to. You know, you define an RDD, and once the RDD is defined in Spark, it just looks like any other RDD. You can do all the same operations. So off the shelf, it, it sounds like it really tightly works with uh, CDH and, and uh, that stack. But what if you're not in the Cloudera world? So if you're not in the Cloudera world right now, um, you can install Kudu completely standalone. It has no dependencies below it. Um, you can just RPM-U the, the RPM and you're good to go. It won't be super useful except for when you want to start coding against the API. Um, there's no like SQL shell that comes with Kudu. You'd have to use something like Spark SQL or Impala. Um, so a- API is Java? Yeah, we offer both a Java and a C++ API. We assume that most people in the community will probably gravitate towards Java. Uh, the C++ one we're using, obviously, heavily from Impala, uh, which has the C++ implementation on the back end. Um, we're working also on a Python API. Um, but at this point, it's still not quite stable. We're, uh, we've been hacking on it a little bit, but it's not part of our well, official if you, product. If you integrate with, with Spark, then Scala too, right? Yeah, yeah. So certainly Scala has the, all the JVM uh, integration that you'd expect. Um, so th- I may have missed this earlier, but uh, you know, when I look at systems like MemSQL and VaultDB, they're in memory. Mm-hmm. So what, what is Kudu? Um, so Kudu is not itself an uh, in-memory database. But one of our performance goals is that if your data set fits in memory, then we should have scan speed that takes advantage of your full memory bandwidth. Um, so again, a little bit of background going back a couple of years when we started this project. One of the goals was this kind of use case focused, simplicity focused goal saying instead of using two systems, you can use one. Um, the other goal was looking at hardware trends. And at that time, we had maybe 24 gigs of RAM on a machine. And looking forward, we predicted, and it's come to pass, that Cloudera customers now buy typically 128 gigs of RAM on a machine. And they're telling us, if you gave, if you gave me something useful to do with more RAM, I'd buy more RAM, because it's not actually that expensive anymore. Um, so 256 gigs is completely achievable. So our, our assertion is that a lot of data sets will be able to either entirely fit in RAM, or at least recent data will fit in RAM. Um, so maybe this day's data or this week's data. Right. And in that case, if you're doing analytics, which you often are on that recent data, you want to get performance that's comparable to one of these in-memory databases. But still, you'd like to have the single system that will spill to disk and query your historical data without any you know, ETL and data movement between two different uh, disparate data stores. 
So at this point, uh, what's the state in terms of, do you have uh, people trying it out uh, in pilots or? Yeah, um, we've got a couple of customers that we've been working with um, sort of prior to our release at Cladera uh, for a number of months. Um, probably the longest term person who's been using it is a company in China who uh, is basically replacing a pipeline that was going to use Scribe the scribe writing the text files and then right. periodic cron jobs to convert those text files into parquet and then other periodic cron jobs to merge small parquet files into big parquet files um, and then query it with Impala. Uh, so they realized, hey, with Kudu, we don't need all that machinery and cron jobs and operational overhead. We can just scribe or insert directly into Kudu. And then we're also now offering their customers um, they can update and they can delete individual rows and they can random access, which they never had any plans to before. Uh, so basically what we're seeing is both the simplicity argument that instead of having this complicated you know, bubble gum and duct tape system, they just have one thing. And also the capability argument that now they're offering their customers more than they could before. So Todd, is, uh, since you're uh, well-known in the HVAC community, is one of the goals then to start attracting contributors from that community? So I don't want to um, to see this as a competition with HBase. Certainly, as we've been developing Kudu, I sit next to John Shea and Michael Stack, a bunch of folks on the HBase team. And as I realize something that, hey, I, I learned this thing that's affecting the way Kudu performance works, I'll chat with them as well. And you know, I'm not trying to keep secrets or compete with them. Um, HBase, I think, is an example of a more specialized system in that if you're doing only random access and you're not really caring too much about your scan performance, HBase will completely destroy us. There's, there's some workloads where HBase will be 100 times faster than Kudu, and that's okay. Uh, we're not trying to do every workload, but we're trying to say we'll be kind of a, a good standard first choice that will work for most workloads if you can structure your data. Um, HBase also has the advantage that they support completely unstructured data, so they, they allow you to have you know, a million columns in a given row, or they may allow you to put um, a recent feature actually in HBase is what they call mob, so medium objects. So multi-megabyte objects were right. pretty well stored in HBase. If you put a multi-meg object in Kudu right now, it just won't work. Um, it's not even that it gets bad performance, it'll just reject it. So it's a different use case, and I don't want to see this as we're trying to steal their contributors or anything like that. Right, uh, right, right. We are looking for new contributors, but I don't want to see it as the expense of any other community. Hopefully this grows the amount of workloads that the Hadoop ecosystem can process and um, grows the number of contributors in the ecosystem as well. So what, what kinds of applications uh, do you foresee this uh, uh, system really shining? Uh, so I think one of the, the easy examples is time series. I mentioned earlier that uh, that's we did a, this That's test. a crowded field, man. Yeah, it's a, it's a crowded <laughs> field, but... I mean, I compared versus InfluxDB, just the storage efficiency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, there's a lot of startups. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and yeah, hopefully, yeah. a lot of these startups, I was just looking at one last night, um, they seem to be more caring about the, the kind of the higher level functionality and not the storage. Yeah, so yeah, they're yeah. providing like a SaaS thing where you can dump your, uh, your time series into them and then they'll provide alerting yeah, and integration I, with your yeah. chat and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you guys uh, solve their pain point for storage, they'll adapt you because what they want is the higher level things like anom yeah, exactly. anomaly like, detection and things like that. Yeah, so hopefully we can give them a store where they don't have to think too much about it and they just make kind of the obvious schema. So I think the thing I like about the Kudu model for time series, you don't have to do this like fancy physical modeling of how you want to store your data. Um, you just create a, a schema that says my primary key is host metric timestamp and I have a column called value and it's a double and then I'll insert my data. 
and you're done. There's no like thinking complicated about how you're going to binary encode the stuff. Kudu does all that for you. We do the Delta encoding. We do the bit packing. We dictionary encode your host names. Um, so like I, I ran this on a 180 nodes at Cloudera. Collecting time. I ran um, a, so I ran Kudu on a single node cluster, a one node cluster, okay. and I ran CollectL on 180 nodes, collecting metrics once a second. So I'm inserting maybe four or 5,000 metric points per second, all going into a single node Kudu cluster. Um, and I wow. got up to like 13 or 14 billion rows before it started to kind of slow down a little bit. Um, so that kind of shows you that you can, you can actually do quite a lot of time series workload with a pretty small Kudu cluster. So put, put, put this in context with an existing system like OpenTSDB. Uh, so if you look at the OpenTSDB website, they have this page where they describe their HBase schema. And they have this like lengthy discussion. Actually, it's great documentation. I should compliment Benoit, who wrote it, uh, how they do the binary encoding of their timestamp values and keys, and then how they later pass over the data again to combine multiple cells into a single cell and um, try to get reasonable storage efficiency. So I think OpenTSDB has done great work in making HBase work for this use case, um, but I don't think HBase was really designed for the, in the small time series use case. It's more designed for larger cells, more unstructured data. Um, so the other advantage I would say compared to OpenTSDB is that if you're using Kudu to store this, this table of your, all your time series, and all of a sudden you say, hey, I'm wondering what would a SQL query look like to find the maximum CPU load during this time range across my cluster? You can write that SQL query in two minutes in Impala, and you get really good performance querying it. Um, or you say, I've got some PhD who knows a lot about time series analysis, and they want to go run some Spark time series model against my machine load metrics. That'll just work, too. And because OpenTSDB had to do these gymnastics to, to get the time series into the HBase binary formats, you can't really explore the data in that same way. It's kind of an right. open TSDB opaque format. Right, 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 right. So I think actually this whole notion of, uh, you know, getting to 70, 80% uh, performance and, you know, the performance accuracy, uh, performance versus convenience trade-off mm -hmm. uh, is playing out in many areas of big data. Yeah. Yeah. I think people are grappling with complexity in their stack. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's probably the biggest barrier we've seen for our customers growing their clusters. It's just, it's complicated stuff right now. And anything we can do to simplify it will benefit them and indirectly benefit us. So what's next for the Kudu team? You guys obviously had to work hard to meet this deadline from mm -hmm. launching a week ago. Um, so what's next? What, what are the things you're working on? Uh, so just to be clear, we launched a beta release at Strata. And... In order to go from beta to 1.0 GA, there's a bunch of stuff we need to do. Um, some kind of obvious things that are missing. One is security. We basically, we have what I like to call American dream authentication, which means you can be whoever <laughs> you want to be. You just uh, <laughs> say your username and we believe you. Um, we have no authorization yet. We don't have encryption, anything like that. Uh, so that's certainly important for a Cloudera GA product to have at least some basic security features so you could deploy this in a, you know, an enterprise that has some security controls. Uh, the other thing is we'd like to um, shore up a lot more of the operational stuff, you know, backup and restore tools, uh, kind of some audit stuff. Basically everything that, that takes this from just, okay, we store your data and give it back to actually this is a system that I could put in a, cr a critical production use case. Um, and then a bunch of usability, bug fixing, um, stress testing. Oh, there's, uh, a, there's a one more thing you left out, man, which is super important if you want your project to take off. Mm -hmm. well, uh, 
evangelist evangelization and the documentation. Yeah, I was, was going to get to that. We, we have some docs already. We've been working with Misty Stanley Jones, who's pretty well known in the HBase community. Uh, she's an HBase committer and worked a lot on their documentation. Um, she's been working with us on Kudu docs as well. Um, but certainly we can always improve that. And then evangelism, yeah, we're doing the roadshow now. I'll be in Strata, uh, Strata Singapore next month. Um, hopefully, talking out to do user groups. So, are there plans? The are there plans to have a Bay Area Kudu meetup? Uh, we haven't planned a Kudu meetup yet, um, but we are speaking at the the SF Hadoop user group. Right. Um, and also, I, I should mention in terms of evangelism that we plan to submit this to the Apache incubator oh, and cool. build a community as well. So, cool. we're looking for contributors as well as users. Cool. Anybody who's interested in hacking some code with us, you're definitely welcome. So uh, when is that going to happen, the Apache? Uh, we're sort of working on the proposal now, and we don't have an exact timeline of when it will be done. There's a bunch of kind of mechanics we have to sort out. Uh, for example, we use Garrett for code review, and Apache so far has not deployed a Garrett instance. And we'd like to figure out how to deploy Garrett within the, the confines of Apache. Um, so a lot of these kind of little points, so we just have to work with the incubator PMC. Uh, and the infrastructure folks uh, on shoring these things up. Cool. So uh, while you're here, I'm going to take advantage of the fact that uh, obviously you've been a veteran of the big data space. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have you uh, uh, opine on some industry trends. Actually, a good place to start is exactly what we've been talking about, uh, this kind of move towards, uh, gen I guess, general purpose systems as opposed to specialized systems? What do you think is going to happen there? Um, so I think specialized systems will always have their place. There are some workloads where you're, you're really resource constrained and performance is the most important metric or performance per dollar is the most important metric. Um, so I sort of see this as a comparison versus operating systems where almost everybody uses general purpose operating systems. And if you look back five or 10 years, none of the phones, like mobile phones, didn't use general purpose operating systems. Now most of them are you know, Linux-based. Um, so you can see the general purpose as resources become less constrained becomes kind of the thing that is most attractive to folks, uh, just efficiencies of scale. Uh, that said, there's still embedded systems out there. There's still companies who produce embedded real-time OSs. And um, you know, those aren't going to go anywhere either. If I'm building a lunar lander, I probably don't want to run Linux on it. Right. Uh, so I think the same thing will happen with data storage, where people say, hey, if this other system gets me 80% of the way there, in most cases, that's fine. In the rare case where I'm actually running this on 1,000 nodes or 5,000 nodes or something, and I have only this one application, I don't care about convenience of you know, three different access mechanisms. I just want this one specialized thing, and it's going to save me 300 machines worth of budget to do it. Maybe it's worth it. But for most folks, the engineering time is just going to win out over buying another couple machines. I think um, in distributed systems in particular, this is the case where really the performance trade-off can just be solved by buying more boxes up to a certain point. Right, right, right. So, so what's it, what's if you're 10 actually, machines, buying two more is like nothing, right? What's actually interesting, too, I mean, uh, uh, we're, uh, this year we're marking the 10th uh, year birthday of Hadoop. Mm -hmm. And Hadoop just uh, constantly kind of adapts. Right, so it's uh, it's a it's a system that seems like uh, people have come to rely on, and uh, and uh, builders like you keep building new things on top of it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we see Hadoop as an ecosystem more than any like fixed set of software. 
I think if you try to fix it and say Hadoop can never change beyond HDFS and MapReduce 1.0, um, we'd be living in the past, right? It's like 2003 era Google technology. Um, I don't really want to work on that for the rest of my life, and I don't think users want to use that either. So I think it's good that we, we keep on stepping forward and increasing the capabilities of the system. Um, and this year, that's you know adding fast scans with random updates and deletes, and Spark is becoming big, and next year, something else will come along. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm and pretty then, excited about that. Yeah, thinking of it in that, in that way, right, that it's an ecosystem that you just don't throw out the entire ecosystem and start from scratch. Yeah, so we, we always want to make sure that anything new we introduce is not um, you know, obsoleting something old initially. People are still going to use the old stuff. Uh, we still need to integrate with all the existing stuff. So that's the reason we chose not to build like a, a new SQL layer that runs on Kudu. We say, okay, we have Kudu, it's storage, and everything else is still going to work with it. If you want to run MapReduce, great. If you want to run Spark, great. If you want to run Impala, great. Um, that's sort of our vision as a company at Cladera that you can kind of choose the storage engine that works and choose the access engine that works. And maybe you'll swap one out as things improve or as your application changes. Um, but all your, all your developers and your data analysts, uh, the experience for them shouldn't really change. You know, you can run Tableau against Kudu uh, just the same as you can run Tableau against um, Parquet files or Tableau against your old relational database. So the more we, we expose these high-level APIs up to the analysts and business folks, uh, the more we have freedom to evolve and improve the, the underlying technologies. So uh, uh, in my position as program director of Strata plus Hadoop world, and you know, one of the things I've noticed is kind of this, and I actually even uh, just uh, helping our editors in O'Reilly uh, go through blog posts, submissions, and things like this. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the things I've really noticed in the last uh, year is the reemergence of uh, real time and streaming. I mean, there it seems like, uh, it's one of these topics that comes and goes, but it seems like this time around, uh, it's really here to stay. Yeah. Yeah, I think you mentioned it earlier. People want to start doing analytics on fresh data, not on last night's snapshot. And streaming, I think, is a critical component of that. How do we get the data? If you're a user on a website and you click on something, we need to get that to the analytic system within seconds, not hours. And and, and, the, and Todd, the systems have gotten better and have, got, have become easier to piece together, right? Kafka, yep. Spark streaming, and the storage layers, and yep. everything else, right? So, yep. And the skill set of the engineers uh, have improved, and they can, they can integrate these systems much easier. Yeah, for sure. I think the systems are more mature, and we've just had more time learning what's, what's the right way to use these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And actually, sp- speaking of which, the other topic that uh, is resonant, at least in the strata world, is uh, architecture, right? So people... In the past, I think if you look back at Strata plus Hadoop World five years ago, you can run uh, tutorials and in individual thing, individual systems like mm-hmm. HBase. They would be popular. They're still somewhat popular. But the more popular thing is to run tutorials and architecture. How do you make these things work together? What are the choices I have to make? Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the the first Hadoop World, or maybe the first three Hadoop Worlds. I gave talks on like Hadoop internals. And people stopped being interested in like what's the newest, you know, micro optimization we did in HBase. <laughs> now people care more about what can I do with it, right? Which is right. good. It's an evolution. Right, right. So the other thing I've noticed, uh, at least uh, I would say in the last six to twelve months, is cloud computing. So even large enterprises are more open to it. Maybe not all of their uh, workloads and data, but certainly analysis is in the picture as far as cloud computing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. 
we're definitely seeing that trend as well. Uh, more of our customers are moving towards cloud environments. Uh, we have a project called, or product called Cloudera Director, which makes it easy to launch Cloudera's software suite on um, various public clouds, uh, EC2 and Google Compute are the ones that we've announced so far. Um, apologies if I've missed another one, but I think those are the two. Uh, and we see more of our customers interested in that kind of thing, and it's definitely a trend. Um, with regard to Kudu in particular, we've also designed part of Kudu so that in the future we'll be able to support multi-availability zone and multi-data center deployments. It uses uh, Raft Consensus, which is sort of a trendy okay. algorithm yeah, yeah. lately that people have probably <laughs> heard about. Um, and uh, one of the benefits of that is that it can actually run cross data center reasonably well. And if you lose a data center, we can fail over to another data center within a number of seconds. We're not really billing that in our V1 release as like, this is a supported feature that we think works well. Um, there's probably a lot of work we'll have to do to you know, actually test that and uh, make it stable. Uh, but the, the underlying architecture is kind of built with that five years, 10 years in mind that that's probably going to be a pretty standard way to deploy software in 10 years. And if we have architecture that doesn't kind of jive with that, we'll not be in good shape. So we talked a little bit earlier about RAM and in-memory, but uh, yeah. other, are there things that are starting to pop up more, even more, are SSDs? And yeah, actually, so you've got I'm super RAM. excited about that stuff, actually. Yeah, you've got uh, RAM, SSDs, but also in CPU, believe it or not, right? So, mm -hmm. I mean, so for example, Project Tungsten of Spark. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so I think there's a couple of things there that are super exciting. Um, as the listeners might know, Intel invested quite a bit of capital in Cladera. Quite uh, a I bit. Guess, yeah, a year and a half ago <laughs> or something. Um, and part of that's also not just a capital investment, but a strategic partnership. So we were working with them, kind of looking at these hardware trends. They know better than anybody what's coming down the pipe. Uh, so one thing they recently announced um, in August at the Intel Developer Forum, IDF, is this technology uh, they're calling 3D Crosspoint. I think the brand name is Optane. Um, which is this super fast next generation flash storage uh, that has you know latencies that are orders of magnitude better than current NAND flash, uh, very good density. So um, closer to RAM speed. Yeah, it's much closer to RAM speed. Um, I'm not at liberty to share the actual tech specs at this point, but it's really incredible stuff. And we're working in Kudu on um, you know, utilizing that for things like cache tiering. Uh, so that if you have a bunch of this stuff on a machine, you'll get really, really incredible performance at pretty reasonable cost, too. Yeah, no, it's just amazing all the, the things that will probably happen in the next five years just on the hardware side. Yeah, yep. Yeah. And then also the, the other big trend that we're banking on, um, I don't know if I mentioned yet that Kudu is written in C++. Right. And one of the reasons we chose to do that, I think there's two main reasons. One is avoiding the Java garbage collection issues that I spent quite a bit of time working on in HBase. Um, we just don't have that issue, which means that we get 99th percentile latencies that are in the you know, single digit milliseconds. So is, um, is this a trend? Isn't uh, Impala also written in C++? Yeah, the Impala backend is written in C++. Okay. Uh, so one of the things is avoiding GC. So we, right. we've tested up to 256 gigs of you know um, heap size on a Kudu process, and there's no problem. Um, and so, uh, so will the other aspect is... Will, Todd, will this affect the number of contributors, given that there's more people probably proficient with Java? You know, it might. Um, that's definitely a concern. I think for Java developers, we're hoping that they'll contribute a lot to the Java client, for example, which I is see. pure Java, uh, no JNI, anything like that. Um, also, there's plenty of integrations that are Java. So we're hoping that Scala developers will pitch in on improving our Spark integration or you know, our MapReduce input and output formats. Um, so there's definitely ways for Java developers to contribute. Uh, in the actual database space, 
I think there's more C++ and C developers than people in the Hadoop ecosystem like to admit. Um, you know, Postgres has a large and active contribution right. community, and it's in C and has looked basically the same since 1985. So right, 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 right. So you're now uh, you're now considered a gristled veteran. <laughs> uh, so you're probably uh, uh, in a position where you're also, besides hacking yourself and coding, you're also managing people, right? So, uh, so I'm actually not. I've I've escaped that. Oh, you've escaped! <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. 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 But uh, as you look at this kind of younger generation of uh, infrastructure engineers, uh, uh, I think they're coming in with slightly different uh, backgrounds and skill sets than you were, right? So. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. In some ways, yes. In other ways, no. Um, like I mentioned, in college, I didn't study databases or distributed systems at all. Uh, but what I learned was how to read papers and how to learn stuff. And I think any good university today is still graduating students with those base skills, how to look at an algorithm, how to analyze interactions in a system. Um, so, so, so I'm so, less worried about that kind of thing. So um, what do you think about the fact that, you know, I mean, many of these systems that we've talked about uh, uh, in this hour have to have, were invented by people in industry, right? The Cassandra, HBase, Hadoop, Spark. Uh, I don't know how many professors can actually teach people skills in those areas. So there's somewhat of a disconnect yeah. there. Right? So. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a disconnect also between the probably the average practitioner who uses these systems and the developer who develops these systems. Um, so I think for those of us who are working on creating the systems, the the base CS skill sets like algorithms and right. um, operating systems, things like that, definitely apply. And actually, most of the systems you mentioned are based on uh, papers that have Research. been published in academic conferences. I mean, yeah. some of them were academic industry publications. Some of them were... Um, sorry, academic research versus industry publications. Um, so Spark actually was developed by Matei when he was a student at the... Amp Lab. Uh, it, I think at the time it was the Rad Lab and it turned into oh, the yeah. Amp Lab. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, so I mean, there is a lot of industry academics crossover there. And then on the actual user side of the systems, you're right, I think that's more of like a skill uh, and less of like a, an academic pursuit yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. in a lot of cases. And, and there's more of those people, the practitioners as opposed to the builders, right? So. Yeah, so I'm hoping that things like, you know, Cladera has a training course, of course. Um, and we, we do work with universities as well to get this into university curriculum. Uh, I know that Brown has a, a big data, data science type course where they, they do some Spark and they do this kind of stuff. Um, I don't think they're aiming to train a practitioner, um, but I think that's sort of a per so, university decision, how much of their vocational training versus academic right, right. theory. So one of the things I've been kind of thinking about is this whole, um, you know, as you know, just like you had to learn a lot of DevOps, right, uh, in the beginning, and that actually benefited you. And I yep. think to a lot of extent, uh, practitioners have to have a lot of DevOps skills in them now nowadays. But yeah, on, sure. on the other hand, uh, uh, one of the trends I pointed out is cloud computing. So uh, a lot of the things are going to be managed for you in these managed environments. So maybe your maybe uh, the set of skills you have uh, will will change too. You'll have to know a little bit more about Amazon, G or Google Computer, Azure. Yeah, that's that's certainly true. Um, like I had to learn a bit about Amazon early on at Cloudera. Uh, we use it for some of our build infrastructure. Um, but again, I think these kind of base skills about how do computers work and how do you read documentation and when something does what you don't expect, how do you dig in and get to the bottom of it? So Those skills you, I think, never change. So since you're not, uh, you've been able to escape managing. <laughs> so you must still be involved in hiring and maybe uh, kind of mentoring some of the newer engineers fresh out of school. 
Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, so I'm a team lead for the the Kudu team. Um, so part of that is definitely interviewing and reviewing resumes. And um, I've been involved a little bit with some other coworkers on the the overall Cladera interview process and things like that. Oh, how to, how to refine it and how to make it. Yeah, better. exactly. Especially as we scale. You know, we've gone from 10 engineers when I joined up to um, like 10 people when I joined to 900. So are you guys right asking now. this impossible sorting algorithm question? <laughs> so I'm, I'm really not a fan of those questions that are like, if there's some algorithm that I don't code most of the time, I'm not going to ask it. Like most of my questions have linear time answers. <laughs> right, 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 right. So Todd, this has been great. And, Thanks. Yeah, and, it's been a and, pleasure being on the show. And thank you for giving us a update and a deep dive into Kudu. And uh, we look forward to more developments in the future and maybe even uh, going to one of the local meetups when uh, uh, the first ever Bay Area Kudu yeah, keep meetup happens. Filled. Yeah, yeah. Uh, follow me on Twitter and you can find out where they are. I'm sure I'll be promoting them like crazy. Yes. And Todd on Twitter is at T Lipkin. Yep. That's right. All right. Thank you, Todd. All right. Thanks a lot. You can follow Todd Lipkin on Twitter at T Lipkin. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.